have a seat and listen to this verse from Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. First of all, just want you to consider the fact that Jesus' throne is called a throne of grace. You know, if you're going to come near to a throne, don't you want to come near to a throne of grace? And it says that we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. I know that, that some of us come in here today and we, we say, you know, I'm not in a time of need. But we may know someone who is in a time of need, and we can also lift them up. Uh, some of you saw the email that went out yesterday about Talon Markward. And um, if you don't know the Markward family, uh, dear family, uh, members of Creekside, for, for several years, uh, recently moved down to Nashville, but uh, their son, Talon, has been uh, in the hospital, I think, since Monday and, and receiving tests, and the doctors are having trouble you know, figuring out what's going on. Uh, that's just the kind, an example of the kind of thing that we can draw near to the throne of grace. And so we're going to give you just a, a minute to bow your heads, pray. Uh, pray for any need that God brings to mind, um, whether for yourself, for someone you know that is hurting or struggling or sick. And uh, we're going to give you a chance to do that uh, before we sing our next song. Thank you for giving us Jesus, for calling us before your throne of grace. We just pray that you would lift us and encourage us again as we come to your word this morning. Challenge our hearts and help us to be disciples who follow after Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, you can go ahead and have a seat. If you're part of our Sunday school class, you're dismissed to the back. Um, the only quick announcement I have is that you can come on up, Steve, is that prayer night, don't forget, our quarterly prayer night is a week from tonight at 6.30. So with that, I hand it over. Thank you, Alan and praise team. I'd uh, just like to uh, welcome you here. If you happen to be here as a guest, uh, if you're online, this really can't apply to you, but if you're here as a guest for the very first time uh, at Creekside Church in person, uh, hopefully you got a bulletin. They are on the welcome table as you come in, but on that, in that bulletin there is a, an additional uh, flap. And if you would uh, take the time to fill that out and drop it in the offering box, that would be great. And the offering box is on the welcome table as you leave the sanctuary out in the entryway. And if you're part of our church family, again, that flap is for you too. Uh, you can fill it out if you have a prayer request or something you'd like to call our attention to. We'd sure appreciate that. Would you please... Uh, bow with me as we pray. Father, this morning uh, my heart uh, comes to you because we're um, uh, entering into a, a challenging passage of Scripture and ask that you would open our eyes, uh, that we would behold the truth from it, that we would apply it to our lives. And I ask, Father, that you'd continue in a special way to meet the needs of uh, those who are struggling and challenged uh, today. I pray that you would comfort them and encourage them. I pray that the, uh, the, 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 the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Spirit of God would be and abide with them. And I ask that you would take the truth, drive it home to our hearts, and let us apply it so that we can bring glory and honor to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't remember a time... In, in my ministry, and I guess I'm uh, older than I like to think about, but uh, when I look in the mirror, I'm reminded of it. I don't remember a time in my ministry in which marriage matters mattered more than they do right now. And I say that because uh, currently the definition of marriage and the expectation of those who are or plan to be or who have been married is constantly being challenged it's the expectations the the idea of marriage is being challenged it's being convoluted it's being corrupted more than than ever in in my lifetime that I remember 
And the, 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 one of the best discussions that deal with this whole marriage and marriage matters is found in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 21 and going on through chapter 5, verse 33. And if you remember, if you weren't here last week, that's fine, I'm going to catch you up. But last week we looked at chapter 5, verse 21, and this whole idea of being subject to one another. That is, voluntarily, willingly uh, submitting ourselves and, 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 and understanding that we're to live for the welfare of others above our own, that be subject to one another, is applied to three spheres of relationships in chapter 5, verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 9. And this morning, we're going to look at how it's applied to the sphere of marriage in verses 21 through 33, the mutual submission in marriage. And since marriage is foundational in society, I, I mean, as a, as a society, and all of humanity, and, uh, and it impacts all of society, what we have to say, I think, is important not just for those who are married, not just those who are planning to get married, but for all people. Now, I'm going to make a little proviso here, a little quid pro quo, a little uh, thing no elbows, okay, uh, no uh, knees uh, slamming in, and, and no fingers being pointed to those who need to hear what is being said here this morning. Let's just look at our own heart and our own soul and our own mind and our own life as we look at the text. And so this morning, if you have your Bibles, if you would like to open up the Bible or your Bible app or reach under the seat in front of you and grab one of the Bibles, I'm in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 21, and we're going to look at what Paul does. He provides believers with practical application of what mutual submission looks like, in particularly in a marriage relationship, detailing the biblical responsibilities of the husband's and the wives. Okay, I'm going to read the text, verse 21 of chapter 5, Ephesians 5, 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Talks to the wives first. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's what he says. There are four parts to the instruction, the exhortation of, given to the wives. And we begin with the mandate to submit. He starts, wives, believing wives, okay, because the text refers to those who are believers. We can't expect, we wouldn't, I mean, if I was talking to an unbelieving wife, I would say this is God's biblical pattern and biblical instruction, but here it's to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, wives, believers, be subject. Now, interestingly enough, that verb is not in verse 22, it's carried over from verse 21. That's why it's a applied to the different relationships. It applies the command from 21 to the wife calling for voluntary, ongoing. It's a present tense, which means continuous action. It's not one time. Well, I, I really was submissive once, uh, and so I'm good. Uh, no, it's for all time. 
uh, surrender to her husband's, now get this, his divinely ordained position in the home. Okay, his divinely ordained authority. Now, it's not a call, it's not a call to obedience, but to deference. Now, that may be a word you're not familiar with, so I'm going to explain a little bit. Deference would be a humble readiness to give preference to the will and the welfare of the husband over your own will and welfare. Um, So, you want to buy new window coverings. And your husband says, well, it's going to cost this much for the window coverings, but here's what I think we should do. We're going to apply that amount of money to our car loan and help pay down the car loan instead. You forsake your own will and welfare for the sake of what the husband says we should do in this situation. Now, I would say, okay, uh, I know I'm sitting here looking at, or standing here looking at several uh, women, uh, many of whom are wives, uh, many of whom wish to be wives, and they're going, okay, where are you going with this? Uh, You really going to say what I think you're going to say? You already said it. I said submit. I understand a little bit. I don't totally get it, but I understand that this command, and it is a command, can strike fear and frustration into the hearts of women and wives. Now, why would that be so? I'm going to give you three little quick reasons why I think it would strike fear or uh, frustration into the the heart of of a woman who is married or, or, or wants to be married. First of all, theologically, a perversion of the roles and responsibilities resulted from the fall and the curse back in Genesis chapter 3, chapters 3 and 4, such that it distorted women's assigned submissiveness and man's proper use of his authority. So in the fall of man and the curse that came about as a result of it, here's what, what played out. Wives improperly assert their authority. Uh, your desire shall be for your husband uh, even though Uh, which means in Genesis 3, if you looked at Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where it says sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, speaking of Cain, the desire is probably to control. So wives naturally uh, and fallenly would assert their authority, whereas the husband, the man, would abdicate his authority or abuse his authority. So that's a perversion of what God's design is. Educationally, that perversion has only been accentuated and authenticated. You look at the educational system and what does it teach women? Assert your authority. Now, it doesn't teach men to abuse their authority, but it certainly encourages them to abdicate their authority. And then finally, if, if you looked at uh, practically, I understand that practically, and believe me because I've done marriage counseling, In premarital counseling, I understand that women have experienced or they have witnessed abuse which reinforces your resistance to voluntary vulnerability, okay? To be vulnerable to another fallen human being. I understand that. But notice the text says, wives be subject to your own husbands. And Paul, I think, intentionally uses these words, your own husband. So there is a sense in which it communicates intimacy, your own husband, and it also communicates possession. Read through the text, and I'm not gonna, I can't go every, every word for word, but it talks about wives submit to your own husbands. Husbands love your own wives. There is mutual possession. So that there is a sense, and this is not an unhealthy thing. They are, they are together, and they, they own each other. So then we look at the manner, that's the the mandate, but the manner is as to the Lord. Look at verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, in reverence to Christ. Verse 22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Believing wives are called to accept and support the authority of their husbands without resentment or regret Because in doing so, they're voluntarily 
and ultimately submitting to the risen and reigning Christ. You see, wives, that the call to submit to your husbands is ultimately a call to submit to Christ. Now that ups the ante a little bit, okay? Um, there's a young gal that uh, Marla and I know, and, um, and I've, she wouldn't want to go to church camp because there were bugs at church camp, okay? She got married. Her husband felt God calling them to serve in another country, in the remote part of this country, in a third world country. And while she went, she followed her husband, she submitted, she went to her, and they lost their first child prematurely because she, uh, we don't know for sure, but they were an hour and a half from the nearest hospital. She serves there with her husband and their five children today because she was willing to follow God and submit to her husband in fear of Christ. What's the motivation for doing that? What does Paul say? Why should you do this, women? Well, and if this hasn't boiled your blood yet, this will, probably, because of your theological perversions, educational uh, uh, confirmation, and perhaps your experience. But the text says, for he is the husband, for this is the reason he is the head of the wife. That's what it says in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife. With God ordained authority over her in marriage. And so hear me carefully. She, she the wife, you wives, you do not defer as an inferior person. Scripture never says that the wife is inferior to the husband. No. Now Galatians chapter 3 verse 27. For all one in Christ whether we're Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, male or female. In Christ, we're all one. You're never inferior. But in celebration of your God-given role and His God-given role and responsibility. See, this is what God has placed in, in the husband's headship in the home is, is then reinforced. Notice the text goes on to say that He is the head of, 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 the, of the, uh, the wife as Christ also is head of the church. So the husband's headship is reinforced by the comparison with Christ as head of the church. And we saw this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. You can just remember it and circle it. But all of this headship, responsibility, organization is laid out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Uh, I think we have this on the screen. But I want you to understand, Paul tells the Corinthians, that Christ is the head of every woman, or every man. And the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. So this is God's divine order of authority. Christ is the head of the man, man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. So that's how it plays out. And then the text goes on in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. He himself, this is Christ, he himself being the Savior of the body. I think, well, okay, he's the head, he himself being the Savior, so... How does this fit in? I believe that Paul here is beginning to unpack and hint at what he talks about later as the husband's responsibility. He's the head of Christ as Christ is the head of the church. He himself as the savior of the body. Only Christ saves. The husband doesn't save. He's not saying the husband saves. Okay. Only Christ saves. But he is revealing. He's kind of pulling the curtain back on what he's about to say. And he goes on and he does say that Christ's redeeming work, he is the Savior of the body. Christ's redeeming work, I believe, is, is a, highlights the selflessness and the sacrifice as key elements in the exercise of Christ's headship, which the godly husband is to imitate. So he's the head of the church and he... He, he is the savior of the body, so his selflessness and his sacrifice defines his headship in the same way that those characteristics should define the husband's headship in the home. So here's the deal. Wives, you're, you're to submit to a servant, not a tyrant. Okay. 
believe that's what Paul is trying to unpack. Now, what's the, what's the model? The model for the wives' submissiveness is the church's submission to Christ. That's verse 24, okay? Just as the church supports and serves Christ, the wife is to serve and support her husband. See, the, the, the church is to carry out the mission of Christ, to make and mature disciples. And they're to submit to that, and in the same way, the wives also should support their husbands. And here's a real irritant, perhaps, in everything. I didn't make it up. It's in there. It's in everything, okay? Now I'm going to qualify it here, okay? So how the money is spent, uh, where you go on vacation, child's discipline, where you're going to spend the holidays. Those are some examples of everything, but not all-inclusive of everything, all right? I understand you're going to be vulnerable under the care of a fallen, imperfect human being. Okay? I believe that the submission allows the wives to voice their opinion. Okay? You give your input. I believe that she is allowed to challenge the plan before the plan is implemented. I believe that she's to pray. That God would give this fallen creature wisdom beyond his capability and ability. And also that God would, if in the case needs to happen, change his mind. So that it's more in line with her uh, superior idea. Okay? Quote, unquote. All right? You're called to do that. But then, after all that, you support in reverence what he's done out of fear of Christ. There's a really uh, a godly woman that I know with, with several children. And her husband just loves camping. And she, over the course of these years, has, you know, which the camping is a miserable and exhausting experience for her with lots of little children running around. This is no vacation for a mother with any children, let alone five or six of them. Camping. But she has unbegrudgingly done it for years. Because she submits to her husband out of fear of Christ. Now, submission was and is never intended to direct the person. And again, I said, I said it's not a, a call to obedience, although obedience is part of submission at times, okay? But it never means that a wife is to be endangered herself personally or that she is to endanger other people or to break the law or to violate God's word or God's will, okay? That's not submission. That's stupidity. Okay, that is not the Bible. Okay, the Bible doesn't call us to disobey God. It doesn't call us to put your life in danger or your, 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 yourself in danger or your children or anybody like that. So don't hear me say that. I don't believe that's what Paul is saying. There's a balance here, okay, between a loving, caring husband and a submissive and supportive wife. Submit, you know, so here's, here's my suggestion, ladies. Uh, if you're not married... Pray for some guy that you're willing to be married and submit to. Somebody who is surrendered to Jesus. Those are the easiest ones to submit to. All right. Now, if you're married and that's, you're, you're already married and you don't have a choice because now you're married, then my, my encouragement is uh, submit to your husband, your fallen husband, your imperfect husband, in reliance upon the Lord. Not because he deserves it, but because you love Christ. First Peter chapter 3, verse 1. And I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying it's going to be perfect. I'm not going to say, it, I'm not trying to paint a picture that it isn't there. Again, remember what submission is not. And then remember what submission is. 
Now, that's it, ladies. You're done. Okay? The bulk of the text deals with the guys. And the, 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 the remaining most verses are to the guy. Okay, so ladies, keep your elbows to yourself uh, because uh, it'll be a temptation. He says, love your wives. Again, four parts. First, the mandate. Husbands, our submission, our manifestation of what it means to mutually submit to our wives is to love them. That's verse 25. Husbands, love our wives sacrificially. Love your wives, not lord it over them. Okay, he didn't say that. He just says, love your wives. And, then he, and it's a command. Also for continuous action, not once in one shot. And to demonstrate this unconditional love in marriage. Chapter 5, verse 25. Look at your Bibles. Chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Chapter 5, verse 28. So, husbands ought to also love their wives. Chapter 5, verse 33. Husbands, love your wives. Three times. He beats it down. Beats it down. Husbands, love your wives, love your wives, love your wives. Now, I mean, I understand. It's, we live in an Im, a fallen, imperfect world. And sometimes you do the best you can to do that, and it still doesn't work out. Uh, you know, uh, we live in a fallen world, and I'm sorry. And my heart goes out to uh, people in which this doesn't work out, wives and husbands. It doesn't always. But this is the call that he's given to us. Such love is possible, this love your wives, this unconditional love, only for believers. Because only as we have experienced the love of Christ are we able to express the love of Christ. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God because God is is love I can't give what I don't have I tell this to I mean if you've heard me do a wedding I will say this is one of those things that I always say or try always to say in a wedding you can't give what you don't have and so God calls us to love husbands as Christ loved the church then he goes on in in verse 25 and he says um, that he uh, yeah here we go Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the manner of of love. And it's illustrated in Christ's love for the church, his body. Christ manifested his love for the church by giving himself up for her. Husbands, you want to know what it's like to uh, love your wife? Just die. Pretty much it. And I'm serious. That's what Jesus did for the church. He just died. He gave of himself to the point of death. And he, the, the, it's about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice, a sweet aroma to God. Oh, offering, sacrifice, Okay, guys, that's it. Offering, sacrifice. That's what we sign up for. Sacrificial and selfless giving for the benefit of another is at the heart of Christ's love for the church. And the husband's love for his wife. Because he's supposed to love his wife as Christ loved the church. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Paul ends that great section there. And he says that he, he who gave himself for us to redeem us. He gave himself for us. The for us is on our behalf, in our place. Okay? Means he died for us. In 1943, the, the, the SS Dorchester was torpedoed. And on this ship, as it was going down, there were four, uh, four army chaplains, or navy chaplains, they were chaplains, and they were short on life jackets. And so these four men gave up their life jackets to four other human beings on the ship, and then the four of them joined hands, sang hymns, and prayed, and went down with the ship. And they gave their lives for the others. That's what we're supposed to do, guys. And the reason for 
Christ's sacrifice is given to us in verses 26 and 27. Now, if you look at your Bibles, you see that, at least in the New American Standard, verse 26 begins with that, verse 27 begins with that. These are the reasons for Christ giving his sacrifice, which are to inform the husband's relationship with his wife. Again, remember, the husband can't save his wife, but Christ can save us. And so verse 26 begins, first of all, with the, the, the result would be our sanctification. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her. And I believe this ultimately refers to our salvation. To set us apart. Sanctify means to, to set apart from what's common or profane. To make holy. And Christ made us holy in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and 14. We see, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We come to faith in Christ, we're set apart, we're declared righteous. The, the last part of Titus chapter 2 verse 14, it says that he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Okay? To make us holy and righteous before him. So that was the purpose for Christ dying. You see, we're all messed up. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, For there's not a righteous man who continually does good and never sins. Which kind of means we all sin. And because we all sin, we deserve God's wrath. But God in His infinite mercy sent His Son Jesus who went to the cross for us in our place. That if we would put our faith or our trust in Christ, that we would be sanctified. We would be set apart from common and profanity, and we would be made holy and righteous before Him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, I've quoted this verse before, He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the cross, right? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds we're healed. We are healed through Christ. That's why He died. Giving an example to the husbands of what it means to love your wives, you die. For the sake of the other person. So that they would be made right. And then the text in Ephesians 5 says, Having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Now that's a mouthful. You can look at Titus chapter 3 verse 5 and see a similar idea. But I think, it, I think what he's trying to say here is, The word of God is the water that washes and sanctifies and brings about that cleansing of regeneration because it facilitates our understanding of the gospel. Some of you remember Romans chapter 10, verse 17, which says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the Spirit of God uses the word of God to draw the person, the man or woman, into a relationship with the Son of God. And we're cleansed. And spiritual regeneration. And not just the sanctification, but the presentation, verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or blame, holy and blameless. If you have your Bibles, you look over at chapter Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. Yet he has now, Jesus, has now God has now reconciled you in, or Christ has now reconciled you in his flesh, Jesus, fleshly body, through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. That's what Christ did for us. He reconciled the church through his death, making us spiritually and ethically blameless and holy while we are waiting to be experientially holy and blameless, in glory. hope I didn't lose you there. He made us holy and blameless ethically and spiritually now while we're waiting to be made experientially holy and blameless in glory because we're not perfect and holy right now, right? We are before God, but we are not practically that way. But that's what he did to present us to himself. Husbands, look at this. Husbands' love exemplified by Christ is a commitment to sacrificially and selflessly give what is needed, whatever is needed, whatever the cost, with our wives' spiritual well-being in mind. 
We are to die to ourselves, to live for her, for Christ, and care for her spiritual well-being. That's our calling. I always tell couples uh, when we're going through premarital counseling, often I say it in a wedding ceremony, love is giving better than you get, and it's acting better than you feel. Okay? It's giving better than you get, acting better than you feel. Because when I'm tired, when I'm talked out, and when I'm tense, the last thing I want to do is die and go to the store and get sour cream or veggies or something that I'm not going to eat. We're called to love our wives. And the application of the husband's love for his own wife is selfish. I am intrigued because you get to verse 28. He says, um, so husbands ought also to love their own wives, not just sacrificially, but as their own bodies, selfishly. Right? Uh, and we see the motivation. The motivation is this one flesh union. In verses 28, at the end, he says, he who loves his own wife loves himself. So if I love my wife, I'm loving myself. Because whoever doesn't love themselves, we all love ourselves. So there's this selfish thing. And there's, a, there's some things I want to tease out in the text, uh, a few steps that, that show us how the Christ's love for the church is pictured in the husband's love for his wife, or pictures the husband's love for his wife. First of all, the husbands love their wives because of this one flesh. We don't naturally despise ourselves. Oh, look, when I'm hungry, I eat. When I'm tired, I go to bed. So I look out for myself. We naturally look out for ourselves. But here's the deal, guys. We don't normally treat our wives like our own flesh. I generally don't, I don't normally look out for my wife's interests to the same degree I look out for my own. That's what he's trying to say, I think. But we should. That's what we're supposed to do. Why? Because we are one flesh. We're to normally, we're to nourish each other. That's the end of verse 29. For no one ever hated their own flesh. I don't hate my own flesh. I love my own flesh. I take care of my own flesh. I eat, I drink, I sleep. But we're to nourish. What does it mean to nourish? To nourish my wife, to nourish is to provide for, okay? That's what nourish is. Nourishing love meets our wives' emotional, physical, spiritual, and financial needs as if they were our own because in a sense they are our own because she is us she's part of me as my wife because of this one flesh union so when she needs quality time with me when she needs emotional support when she needs praised when she needs to be safe when she needs social interaction with other women when she needs a nap, we're supposed to step up to the plate and love her as Christ loved the church. As if we would provide for ourselves in those situations. Marla returned recently from a, <clears throat> a trip to help her mom. And uh, she got in the car and she goes, Steve, could, could we just go out to eat? I don't like going out to eat, uh, mostly because I really, not much going out to eat is good for me or I can eat. I said, sure, let's go out to eat. And we went out to eat. Now, I'm not some hero. Uh, that's one instance, okay? Uh, don't talk to her too much afterwards or you'll find all the other instances in which it didn't happen that way. But here's the deal. We nourish and cherish. Then that's the second part. We're cherish, which is to care for and to value, okay, and to comfort our wives. And what's that look like? It means listening to them, not giving them solutions when they're sharing their problems. Because that's our tendency, right? I'm going to fix it because that's what guys do. We fix it. And she, she doesn't want us to fix it. She just wants us to listen most of the time. Unless she tells us she wants it fixed. And then even then, sometimes she's not really telling the truth. I know. That's First Peter 3, 7. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Didn't say understand them. Just live with them in an understanding way. Okay. So we're supposed to listen to them. It means 
warm up the car when it's cold and pick her up. Most of you have those, some of you have the remote starts anyway. I don't have that. We got to go out and I got to actually do it. Well, we do, but I don't know how to run it. So we, we do that. Um, it means telling her, I love you often. It means giving her a hug, but not in bed. It means helping her and letting her help you, okay? And then we see that Christ loved his own body. We, we do this because Christ loved his own body, and that's the comparison between his body and how he treated his body and how we're supposed to treat our one flesh. And that's how did he treat his body. He redeemed his body. We've looked at Ephesians. He, he empowered us and he enlisted us in ministry. Now you say, where is he getting all this stuff? Well, he empowered us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He enlisted us in ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He enlisted us in his ministry. So that's how he... Why did he do that? Because we are members of his body. So he treated us with love and respect and care. And he, he nourished and cherished us as Christ loved his body. Husbands love their wives who are part of, now get this, we love our wives because they're part of our body, but also they're part of Christ's body whom Christ loves. And so we love with this kind of love. And then finally we see, uh, if you look at verse 31, uh, you go, well, I, I do. I read verse 31 and go, where did this come from? I mean, why are we quoting Genesis 2.24 right now? For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Well, you understand that the analogy between Christ's love for the church and the husband's love for the wife is to reflect Christ's love for the church, which is his body. So now he's proving that the husband and the wife are one body and that she is part of him. In quoting Genesis 2.24, now I want you to hold on, I'm going to go through this, try to go through this slow, because it, it may be a little confusing, but I think it's important. Quoting Genesis 2.24 anchors everything that Paul has said. This entire one flesh discussion to the biblical definition of marriage as one man, one woman for life, okay? Everything he's saying pertains to and is based upon the fact that marriage is the union of one man and one woman for life. But it also, but it also proves that the love of a husband for his wife is actually the love of a husband for himself because they are one flesh. And finally, it strengthens the obligation of the husbands to love our wives as our own bodies. Because it was illustrated that way by Christ, but it's grounded in the Old Testament and God's plan for man. And we do this by cleaving. Uh, I love that word. It means glued together. Okay? We're glued together. Uh, in my son's basement, the beams in their new house are comprised of several boards that are glued together, screwed together. They cleave. Okay? But they make one. And in the same way, a marriage is to be an indissoluble union. That's what cleaving, in, I mean, that's my words, but that's not the Bible. It's my words about what this means. An inseparable. I think that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter, well, I know it's what Jesus said, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And you know what he did just before he said that? He quoted Genesis 2.24. So it was good for Jesus, and it's good for Paul, it's good for us. Leave and cleave, inseparable union of a husband and wife. And so it's easy, guys, to magnify our wife's faults and our, her failures and minimize her own, but there's no thing that she will do that we cannot forgive or should not forgive that's greater than what God in Christ has forgiven us. Stay together. And then one flesh. Cleave one flesh. That means a marvelous new thing was created. There were two, they became one. One plus one, I was like, I think we said, I think Anand brought this up this morning. One plus one in, in, in our math is two. But uh, uh, thematically, 
theology and mathematically, one plus one is one. And also it conveys the, the uniqueness of intimacy in the marriage, and that intimacy is only within the context of one man, one woman married for life. That's God's design and God's plan. And then he says, this is a mystery, which is a mystery of what he means by what is the mystery. In verse 32, he says, this mystery, and I'm going to give you my shot at what I think this mystery that he's referring to is. This mystery is that marriage mirrors Christ's and how Christ relates to the church. The mystery is not necessarily the marriage, although there is mystery in marriage and the oneness and the unity of, but the mystery is that marriage mirrors how Christ relates to his church. And that the mystery continues that a healthy relationship between a husband and a wife manifests to the world how Christ relates to the church. So if we have a healthy marriage, we're giving a picture to the world of what it means for Christ to love the church. And then get this, and it looks, and, and that Christ's union, Christ and the union between Christ and the church is that to which the husband and wife look to as their model and motivation for actually reflecting to the world what Christ and the church looks like. Now, I don't know if that confused you, but it's a little bit confusing. So the mystery is that marriage mirrors the relationship of how Christ relates to the church and the husband and wife are to manifest that relationship to the world but yet they have to look to Christ and the church in order to know how to live in such a way that they manifest that relationship between Christ and the church to the world. That's a mystery. But it's not too confusing in the sense that you just say, hey, he sums it up. Then he goes, which is helpful, right? Verse 33, husbands love your wives. That's what you can do. Husbands love your wives. Just down with that. Sacrifice, serve, and tenderly. And wives, submit to your husbands. No, he doesn't say that. He says, wives, respect. Respect your husbands. Honor them and hold them in high regard with an attitude of deference. You voluntarily submit to and you support uh, him as you submit to Christ. So that means like affirming him, you know, verbally appreciate what he does. You can honor him that way and support him and submit to him. It means you give your input and then let him make the decision. It means you pray for him and you speak truth to him so that he becomes all that God intends him to be. Don't let your husband be a wimp. Don't pamper him and don't pester him. Don't give him a pass. Make him man up. Pull up your big boy britches and, and be the guy here. You know, Don't let him wimp out. Don't let him fall back into Genesis. Oh, it's that woman you gave me. Uh, no, and I, I like what I like what uh, Tony Evans uh, uh, what Tony Evans said that uh, sometimes this uh, headship issue is just the wife ducking so God can hit her husband. You know, uh, so duck, ladies. Uh, that's that's what you need to, you need to do. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, guess what? You can't express and experience the love of Christ for your wife without knowing Christ. And that would be my call, that you would put your faith or your trust in Jesus, that you'd surrender your will, acknowledge your sin, and you'd put your faith or your trust in Jesus. And, and wives, uh, you can't respect your husbands the way God calls you to either because you won't be able to do it as unto the Lord unless you are as unto the Lord. And so come to know Jesus. And, and, and just cry out and, and confess your sin and accept what Jesus did on the cross as the payment for your sin then you can experience and express the hope and the help in a healthy relationship. And if you know Christ, here's the deal. I've given you plenty to chew on. But I want to say to the unmarried, pray for a spouse. And to pray for those who have spouses to reflect fully and mirror and picture what Christ's love for the church is. And then work to preserve marriage as God's ordained institution for the health of humanity. And so, uh, as we take the bread and the cup, uh, 
they represent the love and submission of Christ that he demonstrated for his bride, the church. You see, we're supposed to show our love for our wives as Christ loved the church, his body. She's supposed to submit to us to reflect her submission to the Lord as her head. And now we see the picture of what he did for us. And you know what? Christ uh, demonstrated his love for the bride and he demands that we do the same, guys. And Christ alone provides the motivation. He alone provides the, the, the enablement to do what he requires. So I'm going to invite you to just take a few minutes and search your heart, pray to God. And before uh, you, you come, uh, you can come up to the tables. You can take the elements and go back and take them at your seat or you can take them up here. But just search your heart and give thanks to God for what he's done and then gratefully partake and ask God to help us incarnate the love for our wives and submission to our husbands. Father, I just thank you for this challenge and pray that you'd work in our hearts to incarnate it for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.